Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to Crush the Podcast, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network. I'm Kirsten Lyons, and I'm joined by my cousin and co-host, Aaron Raderstorff. And today we have someone on the podcast. You know her, you love her. It's Katie McGrady. She's back. Hello. She's back. <laughs> and I, this was not a planned. A no, this planned. is totally spontaneous. <laughs> I saw an Instagram story this morning and I just put it up. On, did you see what I tagged you in on Crush the Podcast? I did. I'm ready. You did okay. look like Justin Bieber. But also, Thank can you. I just say, I think we should turn this into a little game, whether you're drinking coffee, tea, whatever, White Claw. Um, take a drink every time that Kirsten calls Nate Ned, because she mixes <laughs> Nate and Ted. And she calls him Ned all the time. And it- Wait, really quickly, when I was like pouring my heart out to you the other night when I was texting you and like crying, did I call him Ned? Yep. yep. <laughs> and I you're did. I, a real fan. I was like, I don't care. That's wrong. <laughs> It's because Nate and Ted, I'm tired, guys. I'm so tired. By the way, this is an incredible episode um, with Gretchen Sexton. It's incredible. She's the author of Flying Pretty. It's such a beautiful episode. Aaron and I had such a wonderful time. So it's, I don't know, Aaron, this, you said this was like your favorite, yeah, right? I think no this offense, is probably- Katie. <laughs> Sorry, it's okay. Actually, Katie, yours is, is, first of all, your story is such a roller coaster. It's great. It's great content, but it's also a beautiful story. Great yeah. content. Through <laughs> part of the machine, all about it. <laughs> I think, yeah, Gretchen's, the, the whole conversation we had with Gretchen was so beautiful because I think it encompasses healing and you know what it was? It was living through grief. And I feel like we're, we're almost like talking to her in real time as she's mm. sort of still kind of living through it and processing it. And I just thought it was, it was so amazing. And I felt like it was kind of exactly what I needed to hear in that moment. And I, mm. I, I kept being like, okay, I just have one more question. <laughs> and finally, Kirsten was like, no, we have to go. We're done. Yeah, we actually do have more on Patreon because Aaron did have one more question and then two more questions. And Gretchen has a whole story that isn't in the book where she broke her wrist. So anyway, I'm not even going to go into it. It's great. Find us on Patreon. It's fantastic. Okay. We should say something really quickly before we share, before I read. Actually, I'll let yeah. Katie, I'll let Katie read her own spoiler story. Alert. Yeah. But spoiler alert, we're talking about the final the episode. Finale. Ted Lasso. <laughs> so Katie, would you like to read what you wrote? Would you like to confess to the masses I, that listen to Crush the Podcast? I Okay, so if you haven't watched Ted Lasso 1 and 2, seasons 1 and 2, this, like, stop listening right now or just, like, fast forward. <laughs> also, what are you doing with your life? Yeah, why you are can you get, like, so I, okay, wait, not paying I, $8 a month for Apple TV? That's what yeah, I doing. think you can get it for free if you, like, it's do a... Four, it's $4.99, first of all, and but I, if you don't have four ninety nine, I think you can do a seven day trial. You Watch can do a seven day trial. Seven days. We binged Ted Lasso in eight days. So like, just pay. Like we could have done it in seven, but we got tired one night. So just saying, like we binged twenty two episodes in eight days because we were that committed to. So Ted Lasso season finale, I I put up there. I hate Nate. Now I have to. No, then you said that is all. That is all. <laughs> That is all. I hate Nate. Now I need to qualify. Like obviously, Nate's got issues. Ted's got issues. I I hated him because 
as a, an aficionado of television and sitcoms, although Ted Lasso stopped becoming a sitcom, like halfway point of season two, they decided like, wait a second, we're just gonna start doing 40 minute episodes and nobody's gonna notice. And then we'll do 51 minute episodes and like- And then we're gonna add two me. extra episodes because Apple Plus was like, you need more. So they're like Christmas right. and Beard's gonna go yeah. out in the town. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Beard's gonna get, I thought it was, none of that was real. I thought it was on shrooms the whole time. Um, I'm still kind of convinced that maybe none of it was, but that's a whole nother I, conversation. I, yeah, I don't know. Television wise, it was genius what they did with this character. Mm but I can still really hate the direction that his character is going. And kind of like you hate Anakin when he, he like mm-hmm. starts to go to the dark side. Like Nate is totally drifting to the dark side and I hope there's redemption. I also think that Nate from the beginning has been nasty and we just, we weren't aware of it because we wanted to root for the underdog because Ted roots for the underdog. So I just, I hate him because I think that he is a wounded man who went nasty rather than rose above. In the same way that like Jamie is a wounded man who was nasty and then rose above. And so it's like, I feel like, I mean, they're the foils, right? Jamie and Nate are foils of each uh-huh. other. They're the same, almost same story, but. Right. Crappy dad, borderline abusive, if not like full-blown abusive, who see in Ted a figure that like fulfills a desire in their heart to be loved and affirmed. And Jamie is able to recognize that love and affirmation transforms him into a human being that's capable of existing on his own. And Nate was codependent upon Ted to the point of, of trying, I still think like the, the false nine was an attempt to sabotage the team and like not get them promoted. But that's a, I don't know a whole heck of a lot about soccer. Like, I'm not sure if that would have. So that's why I just, I have a visceral rage towards Nate's downfall because I really think that like he, I thought he was better than that, but I understand why they brought him in that direction for the character. Mm. Does that make sense? That, yeah. And I think the crux of, I thought he was better than that. Right. Like that's mm-hmm. kind of the right there. Aaron, I kind of you, feel tricked. Yeah. Oh, interesting. But yeah. you feel tricked by him or you feel tricked by. I think maybe by both, like in the, in the world of the television show, like the writers are very intentional. So full disclosure, we ended it last night at 11 o'clock and I rewatched episode one of Ted Lasso this morning yeah. while having breakfast with my one-year-old. Did you read I, the thing that the actor wrote on Twitter? Yes. So okay. that's what I wanted to see. It was like, we do. The first time we ever encounter Ned, he's yelling and he's like trying Wait, to- you just said, said, Ned. said Ned. You said Ned. You said Ned. I said Ned. Dang it. Dang it. Okay. So the first time we ever encountered <laughs> Nate, yes. he's yelling at Ted. Brits totally did this on purpose to us. Um, and, and it's like a corrective, like, let me show you how much I know you're clearly an idiot. And I do think that they were always trying to set us up to believe that Nate was better than he actually is at the root of it. I don't know. That's his fault. Like he does have a crappy dad and there's a lot of trauma informing a lot of his decisions, but there's a point in season one when he gives the picture to, to Ted of him and he's like written on it. And he's like clearly telling him like, thank you for changing my life. I saw like, oh my gosh, like his life was utterly transformed by the kindness of this of this he doesn't know him from anybody like wow like we're gonna see an incredible relationship form here and so then the show like messes with your head and like leads you to this place of that incredible relationship and ted is not without fault here like i'm happy to dig into that too but like i just i expected more of a man who had i think been given so much but he thought he just automatically deserved it because he's put in his time as the kit man. He clearly knows the most about soccer amongst the group until Roy becomes a coach. Rather than a gratitude of his heart for the opportunity, Nate responded with, it's about damn time. And I think people who just automatically assume, oh, I should have had that in the first place. Why didn't anybody else give this to me before? Will always drift into that dark side Mm -hmm. within his character, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. It's the paradox that we always talk about that's like, 
sort of in the the same way as fame, people are like, well, they don't deserve to be famous, mm-hmm. you know. And we watch it. We when he's scrolling, his hair, like like you start when he makes the comment, like, don't you just ever want to be the boss? Did y'all find it interesting that the whole latter half of the season, all of a sudden, conversations about the boss and who's in charge, yeah, became like this underlying theme and. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, what would, what would world, the world say? The person who wants to be the boss shouldn't be the boss. Yeah. But yet we like, we're rooting for Keely to become a boss. Like we're rooting for Higgins to have a little more control. Like we're, it's, it's really like, how does every person have a mastery over themselves? And Nate, I think is incapable of mastery over himself. And so therefore will be a horrible coach for West Ham. And will destroy the spirits of those guys. And will get used. I think he's also being used. So almost the whole season, I kept saying to Aaron, I'm Nate. Like, I'm what could have been. And mm. and Aaron kept going, no, you're not. No, well, you're you not. Didn't, you didn't start saying that until he got the notoriety from that one play. And he was yes. scrolling. He was doom scrolling. Yes. And that's what well, really to me, he wasn't saying. doom scrolling. To me, he was scrolling, looking for the adulation, the love, right. the, pride the worship. Yeah, yeah, pride scrolling. I mean, more he was to his detriment was more. Oh, I see. Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. And I think there were so many things that I saw like, oh my gosh, like at the, at the restaurant and trying to get that table and, Mm. and all the like thinking, okay, I got that table, then asking the girl's number. And then, you know, it's like Gretchen at one point has this line. She says, looking back, I see how I was just grasping for love in all these situations Mm. in, Mm -hmm. in this episode we're about to listen to. And in this Ted Lasso world, you just, you're watching, which is the real world, right? In terms of like, you just see everybody grasping for love. I think for me, I just kept seeing Nate and I I kept seeing my ability because of my deep, deep wounds and what I was doing to try to heal those wounds. And it, I do believe that Nate is good at his job. And mm-hmm. I, Katie, I really love what you said about like, if you go into it without gratitude, if you go into it with the entitlement, that nothing is ever good enough and how dare they. Mm-hmm. And I think that I went into my career, my acting career with complete entitlement. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I was beaten down and beaten down and humbled to, to the point of like, I mean, Gretchen talks about it in this interview about like wine, the grapes being crushed. I mean, I was crushed, i.e. this mm-hmm. podcast. <laughs> so um, Nate, to me, I actually have such a font. I, I like I have a fondness for him. It's not that I like him. It's that mm-hmm. I can see the choices and that he made. And I see that entitlement. And I agree with you. I think he's completely being used. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing about the world. Like the world uses us and, and yeah. we, it plays and preys on our entitlement, on our pride, on our wounds, on our deep like trauma plays on us until it's done with us. And I mean, mm-hmm. that's what we see with every famous person who's then, you know, left to rehab or whatever. And they're like, wait, what? Like, where mm-hmm. did you all go? Everything for me shifted in the moment when Nate yelled at Ted. Yeah. Yeah. Because he was yelling at his, I'm going to cry. He was yelling at his dad. Yeah. He was yelling at his father figure. And yeah. that, and that was a man that can never, Ted gave him what he needed. And the mm-hmm. moment where he said, you shined your light on me. And then you turned it off. And for someone who is so wounded to have their light, like somebody finally shine a light on them. And for them to then that, that is the hope. That's the healing moment. And then it gets pulled away. You realize, like we talk about so much, that was never the healing moment. That was always a false God. And I just like, I had so many moments like that in Los Angeles where people would shine their light on me and be like, you're amazing. And like, I'm going to make this show. And oh my gosh, like crushed was a show. Like it was a TV show. And it was like 
first it was one woman show, then it was a TV show. And then this person was like, I'm going to make it and, and, and we're going to do this and all these things. And then for him to forget about me was mm. horrible, like yes. absolutely horrible. What is so fascinating too, and this is kind of what I was sharing with my, my guts. I was texting with Aaron and then I kept calling him Ned, but I also have someone in my life who I am that mother figure for and who mm-hmm. has um, lambasted me in, in recent, in recent times. And I could not shake that scene mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I was not only Nate in that scene, but I was Ted in that scene. Yeah. And it was everybody's, crazy. everybody's been in both of those spots for me when Nate was yelling at Ted, I, I mean, obviously like I'm watching Nate and you're just like, you're heartbroken that his character has drifted to the dark side. Yeah. Then when you listen to what he's saying and you drift back to like Ted is clearly trying to compensate in every area of his life for what he did not do with his father, which led his father to take his own life. That he's trying to tell people constantly, I appreciate you. I mean, you ever notice that? Like, that's the thing that Ted says the most. I appreciate you. Mm. It's like, Ned became, Ned, Nate became, (laughs) (laughs) Nate became codependent upon that from Ted. Ted thought our relationship is established enough to where I don't have to, Ted's not without fault by any means, but like when you also look at the context of, he clearly misses his son. He's having these panic attacks. He's, he's attempting to mentally process the trauma of his childhood. Right. And that's why he's so overly optimistic because he probably recognizes he's prone to depression too. I mean, it's a Mm -hmm. genetic thing. It's like factoring all that in, Nate gave Ted no room to be anything but a hero. And Ted plays that role really, really well. Like, I do think the Ted character has some problematic elements of like, happy-go-lucky folksy wisdom really only gets you so far. And then like you get crashed and burned and thank God you had that therapist there. But I just- It's problematic positivity in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. Like it's toxic to Mm -hmm. a point until he wins people over and they realize, oh, he's not perfect. I had a, a girl in college I went to, her name was Deborah, who was Ted Lasso in female form. Like to the point of, of annoying the fire out of the second floor of Catherine Hall. And she and I got pretty close on our Rome semester. And she told me like, it was very much a Ted Lasso thing of like, I'm toxically positive. She, her words, not mine. She said, because so many people in my family are so negative that I had to be the antidote. But Nate, depended on it more than I think Ted was ever going to really truly be able to give him and or never go beyond that. Even or anybody. somebody that yeah. has healed in a good bit could. You right. Because you notice when Beard calls him out, what's his first thought? Did you tell Ted? Like, does Ted know about this? Like, he never wants to let Ted down. The The ripping of the believe sign, I cried. Like, I shouldn't cry over a poster on a wall in a fictional locker room. But I like, Tommy looked over at me. He was like, are you okay? I was like, no, I'm not. Nate has no belief anymore. <laughs> he is, he has, as your podcast, he's crushed. And, and he has to toxically like react and try to hurt Ted even more. It hurt me even more because it's like construction paper. It, it's like, yeah, it this, was homemade. like it's yeah. homemade. It's not like he had some like printed, you know, no. thing. It, just, uh, it can't be redone and they're going to tape it together and stick it back up on the wall. I mean, I, I do think what Nate said was true. Like you left your son, like, like yeah. that's got it. That's going to eat away at Ted in a way that it should. I mean, right. Like that was my first red flag when we realized, oh, like your wife needed distance. It was like, ooh, but like you ran away from your kid too, man. Like mm. that, ooh, uncomfortable. I think in the middle of, I have a lot of thoughts about Nate, which are surprisingly like 180 out from both of you, which is funny, but well, go, t- go. Yeah. Let please. me, let me share this first. Fine. In his tantrum <laughs> at the end, the part that got me 
was I think he realized that this person who he really respected and looked up to was doing what his father did to him. So he Mm. is actively choosing to be away from his son, choosing to be distant from his son, which is exactly what his dad did to him. Yeah, And it's Mm -hmm. sort of this like, I can't look at you the same way. The part that I felt like was actually like had nothing to do with the rest of it when he, when he was like, it was almost like he was saying, you don't get to have a panic attack because you chose to leave your son. Do you know what Mm, I mean? So here are my thoughts. That's separate. Here are my thoughts on Nate. I have notes. Okay. (laughs) Well, because Kirsten, Kirsten was like, we're going to do this. We're going to fight Katie and you and I are, and we're all going to No, fight. no, I thought I was fighting you two because right. I thought you didn't like me. I was, no. I have my hoodie on. I'm ready. <laughs> now we're, ve- this is very simple guys. Lovely. I, I wish more things in our country could go like this. Go ahead, please. <laughs> I'm referring to Nate as if Ted Lasso was real, not Nate, the character in a TV show who I know needs to have conflict. Otherwise there's no story. Right, 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 right. That. Um, to me, Nate is just deeply embarrassing. And he is so cringy and watching him makes my skin crawl because Mm. he lacks so much self-awareness and that is super embarrassing to me. And that's why Kirsten, every time you were like, I'm Nate, I'm like, no, you're not. First of all, Nate is cruel because he has no self-awareness. The way that he treats Colin, you would never treat another person that way. Even though he's acting out of, I have this power, I have earned treating Colin this way, the other ball boy. I don't think you would ever, yeah, you would never get to that point. And to me, I'm like, that's so embarrassing that he can't see that he is treating someone else the exact way he was treated, right? Mm -hmm. I also have a big issue with people who he totally operates out of the whole, like, you don't deserve having mental health issues because I've had it worse. Yeah. And I'm like, that's comparative suffering. And I'm like, that's so embarrassing for you. Like grow up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That is how I feel. (laughs) There's a, so I noticed something when he goes to his parents' house, and his dad's reading the paper like the right. day after the wonder kid thing. And his mom comes and serves him at the table. And she does the typical doting mom routine. I was like, oh, like you're stunted. Like there's some stunted growth here. Your father never give you affection or attention. You're constantly trying to win his praise. Mm-hmm. And like, honestly, probably everything you're doing is out of this father wound. And your mother's overcompensating for it because the father's probably a little bit abusive to her as well. It makes sense that all those little tiny microaggressions that we're seeing all season would make him such an unaware person because he he was never given the opportunity He's never had to. to become and aware. Yeah. Something so that to me was like the perfect example when he said the whole, you shined your light on me and then you turned it off. I don't think he did turn it off. But the fact that Nate can't function on his own as a mm-hmm. human being without having this person guiding him, even though he's he's been given all the guidance, that to me, I'm like, oh, it just made me cringe so much. Or even share the light. Like, it's not like Ted's light yes. shifted. It just got a little bigger when Roy joined the crowd. Mm-hmm. But I just see Nate as this kid that's holding up his artwork when he ca- made that call. He's holding up his artwork and he's like, do you like it, dad? Do you like it? But dad, he's not a kid. Dad. Yes, but he but he is a kid. He's that's stunted. the thing. He's not. He's that's stunted. what I'm saying. And that to me is embarrassing. It's not like you are in your young twenties dealing with all of these new emotions. I would argue that he is in his mid thirties, Nate. I would, I think so. I I looked up the ages, Rebecca's late forties and Ted is like early mid forties. So I'd put Nate like 32, 33. And I'm like, at least be aware that that is one of your shortcomings and be actively working through it instead of throwing little tantrums that he threw all season when he is at the game at the end of the game and he storms off and rips the sign when he is like looking in the mirror in the restaurant and he spits at himself himself when he goes and buys the new suit just to prove a point to me all of that it's he's throwing oh he never goes to the therapist 
nope. we see a ton of other characters walking in and out of there. We see Roy working through his own issues in his own way. Nate well, never asks for help from anybody. He I just expects to be given it from Ted. That to me is the like the hopeful, and it's so interesting because um, Gretchen in this episode talks about like she quotes Brene Brown. She's like, "You have to own your story. Yeah. You can't. When do you stop being a victim, and when do you start owning your story?" And I think ultimately, like it is, it's embarrassing. And I think what's so fascinating: look, Jason Sudeikis has been in this business a long time. And a lot of those people have, and I, I know other businesses are like this, but my gosh, how many children are in the entertainment business? You're dealing with 40s, 50s, 60s year old people, but they're children. Everybody walks into a room and they're like, love me? Will you love me? Do you love me? And I don't just mean the performers. The, yeah. the producers are like this, the lawyers, the casting directors, the, the agents, like it's like, it's all these people that moved to this town to like, get this love that they didn't get whoever it's from and it's just so fascinating because as someone who praise god all the things happened to me that happened to me that made me not mate i don't know why i didn't get exactly you had the recipe to become that yes is i guess what you're saying okay yes. now i see that a little more yes well, i had i had yeah. like literally all the ingredients the recipe card was there everything was going. So that's, I mean, that leads to a, is Nate, regard, like so many people have experienced those circumstances and can become nasty or can rise above. I don't mm. know that Nate was ever set up for anything but becoming nasty because of the circumstances of his childhood and with his father and like being bullied by the team. I, what I find really interesting is that like he is annoyed when Roy joins the coaching staff, even though Roy was the one that defended him among the team in season one and it's it, it just goes back to this idea of like he has been used and so he uses others yeah i i hope there's redemption i think we're gonna see a scene where like they win something big in west ham and his father either doesn't show up or doesn't give a shit and that's like gonna be a crushing moment where he like maybe calls ted or he if I've ted does what he did with jamie we almost see that circle come back yeah. where where Jamie was hoping to feel good about the win and Ted said, congratulations anyway, yeah. even though they lost. Maybe. Yeah, I think, I think we'll see, or maybe Jamie will have some sort of an effect on, like, I would love that character arc. Like Jamie's the one that like draws Nate out of the, the evil. Aaron's going to need that because Aaron's going to need that because Jamie is uh, Aaron's perfect Jamie's mate. He's a good looking man. I hate well, his personality up until like mid season two, but. I told Tommy, I said, could you do that with your eyebrows? And he like looked at me. I was like, I'm not kidding. Like, I find that attractive. <laughs> Jamie oh my gosh. headbands. I'm in love. Yes. I'm oh, yeah. All for that yeah. Man. Team Sam and T. I have a huge crush on Lasso. Sam too. I have a huge crush on Ted Lasso. And I have a huge crush on Sam. Oh, Sam. Sam Obusanya. Danny Rojas. Danny Rojas. Oh, Danny Rojas. Danny Rojas is so he good. kicks the ball. And when oh Jamie gosh. gives and him the ball, yes. that redemption. Oh, uh, I'm so happy to see and that. And ca the captain with his haircut. There's so, so many great. So good. When he saw the kids wearing the jersey with the, the tape, oh, that I was cried. It. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. what we're saying is, wait, love wait, the tape? They yeah, had the tape kids, over. Yeah, yeah. I missed that. I thought it was just his name no, on the back. The they had the tape. Oh. I'm gonna cry right now. It's so. Good. Oh my gosh, this freaking show. Okay, I gotta go watch it again. I'm gonna. My, Tommy thinks that we're watching only murders in the building tonight, but that is a lie. We are rewatching tonight. I <laughs> on that note, be wretched. <laughs>
I am so excited. We have Gretchen Sexton here. Um, she is an artist, an author, and a flight attendant. She was born and raised in Chattanooga, Tennessee, came to Knoxville to attend the University of Tennessee, married a year later, and stayed that way for 25 years divorced. A year after the divorce, she became a flight attendant. And fast forward 16 years from that, and she's now here telling her story on Crush the Podcast and, as she put it, painting her brains out, which I am a little concerned about that, but we will get into that. Um, Gretchen, welcome to Crush the Podcast. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh yes. Okay, now really quickly, Gretchen has a brand new book. I was able to send some screenshots of some awesome parts to Aaron. Um, to, uh, Full transparency. Oh, yes, it is so beautiful. And full transparency. I was supposed to mail the book out a week ago today. And my life has just been (laughs) insane. She did not. (laughs) Spoiler alert, I did not. But I was able to share a ton about it with Aaron. And like I said, share some screenshots and just some really awesome things. Um, It is called Flying Pretty. It's a flight attendant's journey through love, death, and hope. You know, you and I had a conversation, Gretchen, last week, um, kind of a pre-interview that we do with most of our guests. And I said to you, I, I was just like, your, your story has crushed the podcast. Like literally you say things, which I will, we have some quotes from the book, but you say things in your book that I'm like, um, did we steal her life? Like, did we copyright it? Like, this is so, it's just so on point. So we're just really excited to talk to you. But before we get into crushed moments and the book and everything, we have a very important question. Erin, go ahead. So important. It's going to tell us everything we need to know right off the bat. When you were around middle school age and you were having sleepover slumber parties, what was your go-to slumber party movie? Oh, you know, that was back during eight track days. (laughs) I mean, I can't remember us watching movies. That's so interesting with slumber parties because, I mean, that's kind of, I feel like I'm so old. I'm like almost a hundred, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm getting, I'm gaining ground here. I'm gaining ground. But, you know, I think that we were so into musicals. I was into musical theater. And so we would watch stuff like that. Like my friends and I would watch all the musicals, whatever was recorded that you could capture, you know, whether it's West Side Story or, you know, things like that. Did you ever watch the live Mary Martin, Peter Pan? It was on NBC. My favorite. Our moms were big fans. And so we became big fans of that. It must have been in like the early 60s, I think. Okay. You know, I don't remember that in particular, but totally into musicals. And I was so funny that you brought this up because yesterday I was thinking about how I used to listen to Romeo and Juliet on, um, like on an eight track and just like pour over the language of this eight track movie and the beauty of it. And I'm like, who does this as a middle school, high schooler? Oh, I love that. <laughs> well, you have two musical theater nerds with you. So don't even okay, worry come about to that. the right we place. Are, yes, All you right, are here. right at home. Yes. Okay. Um, okay. So really quickly, before we get into crush moments, we like to kind of set the stage of our guest, Perfect Mash. I assume your daughter played it in, at recess. <laughs> so when you were 12 or 13, did you want to live in a mansion, apartment, a shack, or a house? Oh, totally a mansion. Hands down. <laughs> Where did you want to live? Like if you could have lived anywhere in the world, where would you have lived? You know, I don't think I had huge dreams for that. I just wanted to leave Chattanooga, even though Chattanooga is like the greatest town. I mean, I grew up there, but it has changed a lot. But at the time I wanted bigger city, something Mm. different. So it wasn't like I was trying to escape it. It's just, I wanted something different, whatever that was. And what did you want to be when you grew up, when you were 12 or 13? 
You know, um, 12 or 13, I think I was just really into entertainment. I was just such a singer. My mom and dad were pushing music in a big way. Mm-hmm. And everyone in my whole family played guitar. So it was just a total musical singing family. And so that was really the focus. And it was country music and it was go to Nashville and trying out for Opryland and just music, music, music. And, you know, they really weren't that interested in my musical theater as much because that was a different kind of music. I think back then I was just thinking I wanted to be a, a, you know, a musician to be a country music singer because, you know, that's what I had kind of been groomed for. I think, I think it, it, I don't, it wasn't necessarily country music. It was like, you know, busted flat, bad rude, waiting for a train. You know, it's like, it's that kind of stuff. Just I mean, do you want you sing, to, I wish do you, you sing on here. I don't know. You can 100% sing. <laughs> Not only was that amazing, but also I have no idea what you just said, but it, it was like busted, flat, a ruin, something. I don't uh, know. But it, Bobby I mean, McGee, Bobby McGee, which was, you know, Janis Joplin, you know, that was like, oh, okay. You know, okay. guitar, just that, those are the kind of songs that they were like wanting, and they weren't really necessarily country songs. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I that's was, like I was, singer songwriter and rock and roll. And yeah, yeah, yeah. James Taylor, you know, those kind of people more than really country music, even though, you know, you had to go to Nashville because I lived in Chattanooga, you know, Nashville was just right there. So. Right, right. And so, <laughs> and who did you want to marry when you were like 12 or 13? Oh my goodness. Davy Jones from the Monkees. We were just talking about the monkeys yesterday. We were just I mean, talking about the monkeys. That's so funny. My first concert was Davy Jones and I was just like starstruck. My dad took me. It's like, you go to the, see the monkeys with your dad. Hilarious. I think my mom movie. brings up the fact that she got, if I remember correctly, she got a monkey CD for her eighth birthday. You mean a record? <laughs> yeah, it must've been. I'm like sure she told it to me. Yes, but she told it to me a CD. I think so I could understand. But yes, I think she got a monkey's record. For Your mom birthday. also got a time travel flux capacitor and went into the future to get the CD. <laughs> Brought CDs back. Yeah. Wait, well, you know, I was on the A track, you know, so she had to go back further for that one. <laughs> I need know- to go through how her mash turned out. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you? Oh, uh, yeah, you're right. I'm so sorry. I'm just so excited to get into the meat of the story, um, which is weird to say meat of the story. Anyway, um, did are you currently living in a big city or bigger than Chattanooga? Uh, Knoxville, so a little bit bigger. Yeah, Knoxville's bigger. <laughs> yeah. And um, were you a singer-songwriter or are you a singer-songwriter? You know, um, I did revisit that. Okay. Um, But it was kind of at the end of my marriage and Mm. I sang with the praise and worship team for a while at our church, which was, you know, interesting because I had kind of filed that away. Mm. Um, It was kind of one of those things that I grieved because I got married at 19. I was so young and, um, and just had to decide, you know, am I going to just let that go forever and get married and start working and start doing like wifey, wifey things, which is kind of what I chose to do mm. and let go of the music. So then after, you know, 20 years, probably it was almost 20 years before I really started kind of singing again. So I did that. And I always liked harmony. I kind of like doing the back, the back behind the scenes stuff. I didn't necessarily want to be an upfront. I liked the harmony and just trying to find harmony. So that was really fun. It was fun until other things happened. So, <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay. I think also, for for other performing type people, just being on stage and being part of it is just as fun. I think sometimes, you know. 
Yeah, it was. It was fun to be just a part of a of a band and and all different kinds of music. It was different though because it was church, and I wasn't used to that. I I was used to I want to be the star, you know, and mm-hmm. I wanted to be the front person. And it was like, okay, how do you shift that mindset into? I don't necessarily want people to look at me. I you know want them to see, you know the Lord and not me. And so right. it, was, it was definitely a shift. Um, I had a friend who was working an event and it was like a praise and worship thing. And there was a former boy bander who was trying to get his, like that kind of career off the ground. And he said they had to have so many talks with him because he was just so used to like kind of flirting with the crowd yes, and like exactly. being a boy bander. And they were right. like, Hey, get that. Uh, so cut it quick. out. Yeah. Like real quick. <laughs> uh, we, you're a married man. So you can't be flirting with the crowd. as you're speaking about, as you're singing about Jesus. Okay. It's real confusing for everybody involved. And, uh, did you marry Davy Jones at 19? No, no oh. sadly I did not. I, I do think you might be a full foot taller than Davy Jones. I'm not sure. <laughs> Maybe sure. I need to see what these guys look like. Davey went out with Marsha on, um, no Brady way. Bunch. well, like on the show, right? Davey um, went out with Marsha on Brady Bunch. I'm pretty sure. I think he did. I think they may have kissed and I feel like Jan was upset, but Jan was always upset. So I don't really know. She could have been upset about something else. I don't know. She wore which, weird. Which one was he? Is it kind of too blown out? He's the smallest one. Yeah, he was. He was just super cute. Was he British? You know, right? I don't remember. I, he I may feel like he was. I just, I just remember the Beatles. I talked like this, but I feel like, <laughs> I feel like Davy Jones used to talk like that too. Davy, jo- I don't know. I might be totally making this up, and he might be American. And I'm sorry, Davy. <laughs> Let's see. Hold on. Wikipedia will tell us. Oh, he was. He's English. I can envision him being at the door of the Brady Bunch house and like picking her up and. I think that might be the episode where her nose got hurt from the football, but I might also be blending <laughs> a lot like happens 16. That episode. Well, because I'm also thinking about the Brady Bunch movie, which was like, you know, uh, a satire on it, which I got. Sure, Jan. I know. And I got um, it grounded because I said I went to see it, but I wasn't allowed to see it because it was PG-13 and I was 14 and I wasn't allowed to see PG-13 movies without my parents seeing them first until I was 15. But I swear on the marquee, it said PG. So I bought the tickets and, and my mom oh, drove some of those too. My mm. mom drove me up to Lake Forest Mall and was like, let's look at this marquee. And mm. I'm pretty sure it said PG-13 and I'm pretty sure I was lying to her, but I honestly can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember if I was trying to pull a fast one or not. I just know I saw it. And it I love that your mom was it. like, let's fact check this. and just drove you all the way back up. <laughs> 100% Mary Pat was always like, oh, really? Is that what you're saying? Let's just, let's just rewind the tape and see what was it. Um, okay. So really quickly, before we get into your crush story, what I think is so beautiful about your book is it really takes us I mean it's a it's an autobiography about your life Mm -hmm. and it's so honoring to the people that are in your life whether um those people hurt you or not which I think you know you and I talked about this before but I think it's really respectful it's really honoring and it's really sharing your story and the vulnerability that you went through but also really like I said, honoring and respecting those people. And I like reading stories like that because it feels like there's a lot of healing that's taken place Mm -hmm. and you can kind of come around and see it from a different angle. It also feels, and we talk about this a little bit, it's a bit of an ellipsis. It's a little bit of a dot, dot, dot. Like it doesn't mean when we're on a healing journey that we're fully healed. It just means we're in the process of healing, which I think you speak about a lot in the book as well. So what happens when our dreams are shattered? When we don't get that job with a legacy carrier, when you're furloughed, 
When God doesn't answer our prayers for healing, addictions aren't broken, spouses don't come back home, or my deep gut uttered cries to God feel as if they've fallen on deaf ears. Your imagery, you are a flight attendant. And so much of this book is through the lens of that and a lot of your chapters and just like the visual of kind of how you create the story. But I just kept going back to this one paragraph. What happens when our dreams are shattered, when we don't get that job with the legacy carrier, when you're furloughed, when God doesn't answer your prayers for healing, addictions aren't broken, spouses don't come back home, or my deep gut uttered cries to God feel as if they've fallen on deaf ears. And I just, I think what was so beautiful about that is because you answer that in this book. You tell that story. You tell that story when the things that you desired and you wanted didn't happen and how it can be so much more beautiful, which is this podcast. So um, if you want to set the stage for your crushed moment, um, and I will just kind of let you take it away. Wow. Um, You know, it's a hard question because you can't, I don't know that there was just one. I think there was probably three, but Mm -hmm. starting with the divorce, um, Mm. which was devastating after 25 years of marriage and just thinking that was going to be my forever love and my forever life. And, you know, the, the turn in the road and the diverted um, plane that went to a different place was real. It Mm. really did take me down. And I think that, you know, that was crushing. It was totally crushing. Second, um, was a relationship with a guy that I met at work and dated off and on for several years. And I put so much hope in that. I think, mm-hmm. you know, I just really wanted that to work. And it just, I was writing this amazing narrative that was so awesome about how it was going to work out with him. And it was good. It was really good. And then it didn't happen. And so honestly, that crushing was worse in a lot of ways because I think my heart was way invested and it made me have to rethink my marriage and, and rethink what was I really married to? Mm. You know, was it just to the concept of marriage? Was it, you know, what was I really after, you know? And, and I think I did want that Norman Rockwell house and that Norman Rockwell life and that for our kids to, you know, to have grandkids and then, you know, to spend those days on the beach, watching them run and frolic in the sand. I I did want that. Um, Mm. But I think that it's not that God didn't, but for me, I felt like with this next relationship that happened, you know, I was trying to do things quote the right way Mm. and make decisions differently than I had and getting married so hastily, really, you know, at 19 and all that, just looking back, I see how I was just grasping for love, you know, in all these situations, Hmm. but then the setup, and it was kind of like looking back, all of those, those two first crushed instances, I think were just preparation for what God was, um, knew was going to happen just because life and things happened that my son was going to be diagnosed with a a brain tumor that Hmm. was going to be the crushing of the crush. Mm. And so was I going to be able to stand? And so out of his love, the way I see it out of his love for me, things were allowed even back years prior that grounded me because I really questioned a lot of things about God during those years of breakup and divorce. 
and really had to get something straight. And so when Nathan's situation happened, um, I knew, I knew where my hope was, was, I knew Mm -hmm. my savior. I knew things that I didn't know before. I felt like I, here I was as pastor's wife and, and, you know, you think you've got all the, all the things right, but it's like, I think there's a difference about knowing about God and knowing God. And I think that's where that transition happened, that, that shift happened during those years. And I think I knew that it was going to be okay, even if he didn't make it. And, Mm. and I wanted him to make it. And that was my hope and my prayer, obviously, is no one wants to watch their, their child pass away. Mm. But your ultimate hope has to be rooted in something that's immutable and it can't be in um, something that like whether it's a job at a legacy carrier or any of those things listed, if that's your ultimate hope, then you are crushed, like totally Mm. crushed. Mm. And I didn't want to go there. I wanted to, you know, I I, I didn't want to go back to that place. And I think that the Lord had really shown me that you don't have to go back to being totally crushed, that I've got you. One of the things that you said in the book, you said, every day brings a new challenge and sometimes direction. You think you're headed somewhere and shabam. Wow. I'm in a totally different city. Life isn't the way it plays out. That was the case with my flight. And more importantly, that was the case with my life. Never in a million years, I would have thought I would be divorced. My life made a diversion. I never anticipated a turn. I never saw coming. It wasn't pretty and it's painful to a call. I mean, honestly, it's incriminating to look at who I was at that point. I got married so young and I'm like, what am I going to do? How am I going to get insurance? What, you know, how is this going to play out? So, I mean, initially I think I was worried about survival, you know, like just Mm. surviving all of the days and how was I going to do this? And life was going to be so radically different. It was a loss to, to lose him, no doubt. And it was devastating. But I think I was so afraid of some, there's other fears that can trump the fears that you're in, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes those fears, it, it, they supersede, you know, which is kind of crazy because you think you should be so worried about this, but really you're worried about, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? You know, mm-hmm. I don't have a college mm-hmm. degree. I became, you know, hyper-focused on the fact that I, you know, didn't have the ability to really make enough money to survive. Mm. And, you know, I've been living a lifestyle that was like, you know, the country club. Right. It really was. It was just like, you know, three days of tennis and seriously, it was, I was spoiled. And I think that was, you know, it's interesting because I look back and I think there was a lot of things that needed to get straight. And God knew that I, even though I believed in him and all those things, and I had faith and I was, you know, the preacher's wife, but you know, did I really know him? Was I really rooted in him? And I would have to say, I probably really wasn't fully. Mm. I, I, I believed in him, but I didn't know him. You said, you talk about kind of this architect, right? This structure. Five, you actually quote C.S. Lewis. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing. And so you were not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. Abom- abnormally? Wait, what? <laughs> Abom- 
You got it. You abominably, got it. like an you abominable snowman. You're welcome, people. Yes. I'm a reader <laughs> and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Yes. Throwing out a new wing here, putting up an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little college, but he is building a palace. Yes. He intends to come and live in it himself. He's so brilliant. I want to quote somebody else you quoted, which Aaron's going to be really excited about. Is it Brene Brown? Yeah, it is. She's a girl. I was listening to her podcast right before we started this. Go on. Um, on. Owning our story can be hard, but not nearly as difficult as spending our lives running from it. Brene Brown. And I can only speak for myself, but I look back at who I was even like 10 years ago, five years ago. And it's, for me, it's like, as, as the kids say, it's cringy. It's cringe. Like, oh, it's so cringy. If you look back and you're like, who is that? Who like, oh, it's awful. It's the worst feeling. I think I'm like, how did it get so bad? Like, how did I put all of my identity in this thing? And then, and it's true. It's like, it's so when those things that we put our identity in that will always fail us, it, mm -hmm. they'll always fail us when we put our identity in that and then it does fall, it is so crushing. And something I think that you, you do so well in this book is that you own your story. You really you have own to. It. I mean, I feel like you, there's no way out until you do. It's like that you have to realize that. Wait, can you just say that one more time? Because that is so like, there's, yes. it's, there's just no way out. And if mm. you just stay in that victim mode, mm. it's like you will always be in a victim mode. I mean, it's like, what did you bring to this party? Where you look at yourself, as Brene Brown says, you know, do the work, mm. do the work. You gotta show mm. up. You got to show up. You got to do the work and it's painful to do the work. I mean, it's, I'm a big believer in counseling and my counselor, oh my goodness, I don't know what I would do without her, but mm. I mean, she is just an angel, but you know, it's a lot of years of really probably years and years and years of gaining this one little thing. And it's knowing who I really am and my worth and who I really am as God sees me that is it. That is the key to the whole life to me is because if I can really see myself as valuable and that how he sees me, then all that running after all the stuff that I've run after these other gods that will never, ever deliver what I'm after anyway. I mean, it's all good. It's like, once I realize that, then I can live out of that. And yeah, I, I failed. And I did. And there are times even when after the divorce that you know, I beat myself up for a long period of time. I would say there were several months of where I thought I should have done this better, this better, this better on and, you know, until finally one of my girlfriend's husband said enough, enough, mm. move on, carry on. You know, you've got to, to, to move out of this. And yes, there were things that you did that you shouldn't have done. And, you know, everybody's at fault here, but the, the book itself, I really wanted to focus on not, you know, what he did. This is not a tell all, this is not what I did, what he did. It, it was like, this is how it affected me emotionally. And this is the process of kind of moving through those waters of emotion and then putting every egg in the basket of the second relationship known to man and couldn't get them back. You know, it's like where I've got to get my eggs back in this basket. And I mean, I handed them all out. I thought he gave me his eggs. And it's like, I came back with no eggs, you know? And I'm like, I got, <laughs> I got his, I don't have mine. 
<laughs> it took a while. Um, that was the hard, that was really hard because my identity and everything was, you know, I made all, different mistakes the second time. Mm. So now I'm terrified. It's like, could you date? You know, you haven't asked that question. Well, I, I mean, I haven't really much because I don't want to pick. I must be bad at picking. Mm. <laughs> you know what? Okay. As someone who has been through <laughs> her very many trials, different than yours, was not married for 25 years, but similar, some similar trials, but also just as someone who was, I mean, I look back and it is hilarious. I remember my, my therapist said to me, this was probably like six or seven years ago. I don't know if I shared this on the podcast, but we were talking and we we're talking about, you know, my themes of rejection and my wounds of like abandonment and rejection and just all these different things and relationships and family and friends and acting. And she goes, she's so funny. She goes, you know, it's interesting with all of your wounds of rejection that you chose to become an actor. And it was almost yes. like you just stepped into the most abusive. Like, what are you thinking? Right. And it's so funny because I can look back and see how I, it was almost like California, Los Angeles acting, going back to the C.S. Lewis quote, quote, here I am putting up the house thinking, I'm so great. Look at me putting up the house. And, and God's like, here's a wing. <laughs> I'm yeah. taking out this drain. Right. And I think it was almost like for me, those were the things I had to go through for him to dig deep the, the roots of the wound. And for yes. other people, it's other things. And I don't know. I think as I've gotten older, I've just realized like, I can't trust myself in some ways, but then in other ways, I actually really, really can. And I think when I can, it's when I can see my triggers or whatever, what, what have you, the wounds, whatever, I can be like, oh, this is why I'm feeling this way right now. Mm-hmm. And then it's almost like I can if I'm owning my story, then making those choices aren't as scary because I'm not hoping in the story. I'm hoping in God. And so I can step out and take those tiny little risks and it's okay. Yes. Agreed. I also think through some of your crushed moments, there's almost this common thread of thinking that you, you did the work and you rebuilt the right way. And then it doesn't, it's almost the, the feeling crushed of, okay, we're back to the drawing board again. Like, am I even doing this right? Like, why am I even doing it? You know? And then it's like, something comes out of left field that you feel like you're supposed to be ready for because you're like, Mm. Oh, I did the work. I went through this. Mm. And then either it still hurts because you've convinced yourself like, no, I'm, I'm ready for this. I've been through it already. Or it, it kind of knocks you back back on the ground and you're like, what? I'm not getting up again. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of that feeling in, in rooted in that crushed moment is almost like, I don't know what I'm doing, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that when it got to Nathan and realizing where we were with that, there was this really pivotal moment. Um, I mean, I think it took a while to absorb what was going on because this tumor was the size of a baseball. It was huge. And I didn't really realize that for probably a week. I mean, I, I didn't understand the enormity of it mm. until we, we shifted him back into Knoxville to see a doctor here. And we were, he was about to be released, but we were trying to decide, you know, what were the next steps? I remember this, this moment with he and Elizabeth and just him laying there. And I was like, all right, this is what we're dealing with. And are you guys willing to fight? Are you willing to really step into what's going on? I mean, you can curse God and die, or you can say, I don't know where this is going to lead. I hope that I can persevere through it, but you have a choice to make. It's a, it's a fork in the road. I mean, either, either you give God the finger 
or, or you go, okay, I'm going to lean in and I'm going to trust. And I don't know what's going to happen or if I'm going to live or not, but I'm going to trust him because living doesn't equal that, you know, he's faithful. It just means you don't know the answer is why, if you're going to live or die. And so he chose to, to lean in. And so then I watched him become this amazing man, you know, everything you would pray for, for your whole life, for your kids to become, I watched it happen in a matter of years, just this transformation. It was beautiful. It is such a story of hope. And it is such like a a loving reminder of that. We can, like Aaron said, think we're like, okay, I've got this. And then you just get knocked on your ass, like knocked down. It's like the more you get knocked down, the more you're humbled, but not shamed. Because we, that's another choice, right? We can either be humbled or we can shame ourselves. And Mm -hmm. I think what I loved is watching you move through some of the shame, kind of what you were saying with the divorce when your, your friend's husband was like, Hey, okay, let's do this. It's Mm -hmm. owning our story. It's pushing through the shame and pushing into the humility. And I think what's so beautiful about your book is I'm, I'm literally going on this journey with you of humility and not only for you, but also for your son and your family. And I can only speak for myself, but like being humbled sucks, but it's also like amazing because Mm -hmm. once you almost get to the other side and I don't mean it in like everything's all better. I just mean, it's like when you get pushed down, you can kind of get back on your elbows a little bit and be like, okay, you know what? I've been here before and I can do this. And I actually have a little bit more like tools than I had before. I have more tools in my, in my, my kit. Absolutely. That's so true. And I remember Erin talking about this. I think it was last season, but she was talking about when 2020 happened, she had been duct taping her life together previously. And when 2020 happened, it wasn't duct taped anymore. She actually had like active tools. And I think what I love, I don't Mm -hmm. think I love about your book is that we're going on this ride with you. But I think as a person reading it, I'm also going on my own. I'm, I'm reliving parts of my story as well. And it's really, really healing. And something that I think is so beautiful about everything that happened with Nate is you share so many like miraculous things, but those miraculous things are not that your son is with us right now. The miraculous things are the moments that you guys pushed in and were humble to the fact that you accepted, you didn't know what was going to happen, but how many people rallied around you? How many like talents and gifts just like sprung up between Nathan, just like starting to paint. Like there's just so many incredible moments in this book. There's a lot of people out there that just pray for healing. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think mm-hmm. in the American faith, we'll say the American Christianity, there's a lot of like, if you're not being healed, if the cancer's not gone, if your debt's not gone, whatever, you must be doing something wrong. You don't have enough. Faith. I think so many testimonies as of late, I'd say in the Christian community, all so many testimonies are about healing. And, and it's I, like, that's true, maybe for you, but I think it's, it does. It sets a really unreasonable precedent. And I think what I love about this is this book is such a testimony, but it's not the testimony that I think a lot of people expect. It's not the testimony that everything, which is what we talk about on the show all the time, that everything is in a tiny little pretty bow, but it is so beautiful. Like I, I, I got to the end of it and I was just like, I, I mean, I know your son is like, was a huge runner. And I was like, I don't even run and I'm ready to go run. Like, let's do this. Oh my goodness. You know, 
I, I love hearing that because I, I just want people to know that, man, where you root your hope, it really does matter. It really does matter. And, you know, just to see how community came together and all the miraculous stories that happened. Um, and really there were three of them that I tell in his chapter were of passengers that actually one reached out to me this morning because I sent him a book. And I mean, it, it's just things you can't make up. It's like, I can't make this stuff up. I mean, mm -hmm. I, the guy who called today or emailed me today, literally, I didn't even talk to him on the flight. He was just sitting beside another gal who I was talking to and he was eavesdropping. What as he exited the aircraft, he said, your faith is amazing. That's all he said. And then a little beknownst to me, you know, he was um, Googling Nathan's documentary and trying to figure out how to see, you know, fight like Nate uh, documentary. And so he, next thing I know, he sent a large donation um, to his work, which was just so crazy. I mean, and I never even spoke with him. And just to see what happened with that relationship and how we've kept up over the years and just a man who I shared one sentence with. I mean, I, I can't even believe what all happened with him. So then, you know, there's two other stories, but, and the book wouldn't have even come to be if it weren't, weren't for one of the guys who um, I tell a story about. And so, you know, it's, it's a community was key community. Um, I think that's the thing that that's, I want to scream is how important it is to have people in your life and to have your friends and um there's no way that any any one person can carry the weight of you. They're just, they're not, they're not made for that. I feel like when you go through, and I don't want to say, I think especially, it sounds like your, your son was diagnosed and then it was kind of a three year journey. Is that correct? Yeah. It was almost four years. Oh my gosh. I, I've never experienced anything like that um, specifically. And I, I think it's hard for me to wrap my head around sort of processing something over four years do you know what I mean like they talk about sort of the the grief cycle and I'm like mm -hmm. I I just feel like you're constantly you would be going through that cycle over and over and over again for four years as everything changes well you know one of the things that Hannah my daughter used to say all the time and and I couldn't agree more is don't grieve him while he's here Mm. And um, that was just a really key phrase that we live by. It was like, he's here today, we live. And we continue in our day and we're going to have fun and we're going to celebrate Christmas. We're not going to sit here and think, is he going to be here next year or what's going to happen at Easter or whatever. You know, we were just going to stay in the moment and stay in the day and be grateful for that time. And, you know, there would be a time for grieving and yes, we have, and yes, you do grieve it in your private time and you, you know, you work, wonder what's going to happen and how's this going to play out. And honestly, it didn't really play out exactly how I thought it would. So you keep writing these narratives of your life and it's like, at some point you just have to put the pen down and go, I don't really know what's going to happen or how it's going to happen. But, you know, God didn't give you grace for your imagination, which is Kathy Keller. It's my favorite quote. Oh, I love that. He doesn't. He gives you grace for reality of what you're going to go through, not for what you envision that might happen. It's, it's the truth of what's going to happen. And there's grace there. And so I think that was really, really important. And so we just tried to stay in the day. Wow. That's in a different way. I feel like that's a 
I lived a lot of years not knowing like, oh, is it going to be like this next year? And I think I was on, on, um, oh my gosh, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of on, um, oh, I was walking on eggshells. That's the phrase. Oh my gosh. I was going to say on thin ice. And I was like, no, that's not quite what I mean. But I was walking on eggshells for a lot of different things, wondering, is it going to be like this next year? And had I had that little piece of advice, just like live it while you have it. I think a lot of different things would have felt differently. That's beautiful. And and that's your self-talk. You have to keep that self-talk is important, you know, because we would all fall into not living in the day at times. Mm -hmm. And then I would have to be reminded, you know, stay in the moment. Don't, don't write the story. You know, there were these little phrases that I would just keep repeating to myself. What were some of the best ways that your close community, like your close family and friends were able to help during something like that? Cause that's something that I really struggle with. Cause I never want to help in a way that I'm very much like, I never want to say the wrong thing. So sometimes I just don't say anything at all, which is totally wrong. It's such a great question because I think, you know, we talked about that some too, because people really don't necessarily know how to respond. And there's like this elephant in the room too. And, you know, they kind of dance around it, but um, you know, I think just being present a lot has a lot is a lot. I mean, just being there, you know, people will say, if you need anything, um, give me a call. Well, I'm not going to call you. I'm not going to call you ever about anything. You're just going to have to show up. Now that's for me and my personality. I mean, for somebody else, they might actually make that phone call, but I would say for me that I'm not going to call you. If you say that to me, (laughs) I don't know why that feels weird to me. I I'm not an asker and I don't like to have to ask people to do things. So I think people that just were very present, and would just say, I'm bringing you such and so. And then I would go, okay. They would just tell me what they were going to do. I didn't want to make a decision about food. I didn't want to, you know, I mean, there were meal trains and things like that, that people organized, which were great. Um, that happened kind of near the end. But honestly, you know, people that had gone through different things that were similar, that were not even friends that I didn't even know that I ended up meeting through this process would, you know, have a drop a a bit of wisdom here and there. And, and it was just so awesome to have like, oh, we should try that. That's a great idea, you know, because they, she had lost her husband to the same disease. And so, you know, just people that just using the tools, like back to what you said earlier, using these tools, I mean, you've been given these tools and so you just use them. But I think um, the tools were understanding, you know, that people will make mistakes in how they care for you and extending a lot of grace because you know people don't know how what to say or how to do it. But just to also try to just be willing to to talk about Nathan. You know, like I feel like sometimes people don't want to say his name. And I like I get excited when someone says, you know, do you think about this or how do you feel about that? I'm like, oh, you say you remember because we don't want his him to be forgotten. Yeah. And so that to me is like huge. Is it's for people to really like continue to allow him to live on in their memories and ask questions and his two of his friends this year is a great example we gave away a bunch of his clothes when he died and it's such a cool thing because now his friends have his jackets and his shoes which he had a million pairs of running shoes when I kid you not (laughs) it was stupid so many running shoes so those who wore the same size as him were like jackpot so 
Well, two of his friends every year do, they climb this mountain out in Colorado. And so they, you know, take a picture of the shoes and they, Nathan goes on this hike, you know, with it. And it's so oh. sweet, so sweet. Or they'll send a picture and they have his jacket on. And I just love that. It's just, you know, little things which are really special. And it's a lot of it are his friends and his community. And so it means a lot to us. I think something that I love so much is, you know, part of him pushing in and your family pushing in was opening up and, you know, that's not for everybody, but I remember reading updates and I remember watching fight like Nate and, and, you know, Ellis was, it was how many years ago it was. He's been gone two years. It'll be three. Cause I'm trying, we got a print, like there was just so much that we could be a part of that we could like love on you guys, but then we could share it. But it was just this idea that like you guys were opening up and he was opening up and that vulnerability was allowing other people, again, almost like reading your book, then it like clues into stuff in my life, watching Nate so heroically go through this. And by that, I mean, being vulnerable was so almost like, um, what's the word? Like permission for us that were watching it to also go through things heroically meaning vulnerably and transparently. You talk about your community and, and one of the, the communities that you have is the, is it the shit club? Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Aaron's what, face was this? like, Aaron's like, I'm sorry, what? Um, and this was post-divorce, right? This kind of yeah. came out. Yeah. This was after divorce. Yeah. A group of us just got together and just a friend of a friend. Well, I'll invite this friend. And the next thing you know, we had this little group of, you know, misfits that um, started just hanging out together and we call it that because I think it stood for like steadfast honest in time or something like that if they had we had this you know we're like but we're not going to put up with any anybody coming in here and not being really truthful and honest about where they were we're not going to put up with a bunch of shit we're going to be like this is who we are and, you know, to, to be willing to be made willing, you know, to be taught, to be, to, to do life. And, um, and it was just a great group of friends of which all are married now, except for two of us. <laughs> I love that. Also, you kicked out people when they got married. You were oh, like, no, absolutely. You're not allowed to be that um, you wrote um, early on in the book, as you said, I had a plan for how I wanted my life to go. I also wanted to be perceived a certain way. Yeah. Um, and what I thought was so interesting about the shit club or SHIT um, is I think all the, you, you got rid of that. It felt like, it felt like it mm-hmm. was like, there's, I, I have, I'm, I'm a preacher's wife that now is divorced and all the stuff that I had put on to kind of cover up and be perceived in this certain way, it's all exposed. So I'm just gonna, this is messy. I'm messy. Yeah it's so easy for anybody to share but we would get into some heated discussions sometimes you know we would listen to a sermon or talk about something spiritual and it it didn't always go really well and but (laughs) but and we didn't always agree on who was dating who you know like and nobody dated really within the group which was interesting but one of the guys started dating a girl and it was just it was rocky man and we were just like red you know it's a red flag and there's another red flag and you need to break this off you know like we were stepping in and telling him what to do and he, he listened eventually it took a little while but he finally did 
but you know, we were speaking into each other's world and I think we needed that. But then there was like Thanksgiving would come and then, you know, we would maybe get together and some of us who didn't have a place to go or that the kids were going to their dads, you know, we would decide we're going to have our own thing or we're going to go to Christmas Eve service together. It was just a nice place to land that was Mm. safe. It was a safe place. Mm. And it was, it was necessary. It was good. It was a, I mean, and we don't, see each other that often actually that we they gathered a few of them came together recently um with the launch of my book because I told them I, I wrote about you guys I hope you know <laughs> you're in here <laughs> um but uh, so a few of them showed up but it was fun it's just fun to get together because it's like you can kind of pick back up where you left off you know it's yeah. like those kind of friends it's really fun and that shared we talk a lot about the shared experience of loss whatever that loss may be it's like you get me and I, that's such a gift and community. And, and you were speaking about that with Nathan too, where people would be like, well, my husband had this or this. And just that idea that the gift of like, I don't know exactly what you're going through, but I have a small inkling and let me be present for you, whatever that may mean. Well, a great example, and I don't tell this in the book, but um, when Nathan's diagnosis, when I found out he had had the seizures, I was on a trip and I got the phone call, you know, I was at a hotel. I was going to leave later in the afternoon. And, um, I realized, you know, I could not wait any longer to get out of Evansville, Indiana, and I needed to get to Chattanooga. And so the flights were not, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't put me there till like almost midnight. So I decided I got to rent a car. And one of those people in the shit club, one of my good friends, um, he said, we're doing this. So you just go to the airport and you get a car and we'll take care of it. And I don't know who paid for it, how they paid for it, but they paid for it. And it was a one, one way, probably two or $300 situation that was just taken care of by that group of people. And it makes me cry, Mm. but that's the kind of thing where people come up, you know, come, come alongside you and they show up and, like, how, how do we do this? Well, you just pay attention, you know, um, Aaron, when you're asking, you pay attention and you hear a need and then they stepped in. They're like, you know, I didn't have an extra $300 to just go rent a car, but I knew I had to get there, you know, mm-hmm. immediately. So, um, so I did. So, and it was because of them. This mm-hmm. is really sweet. My therapist always says, uh, and I've said it on the show, like, God, give me the grace to see what you want me to see. Mm-hmm. And I think so much of that is what you just said, like being present and not the imagination, but the reality and the graces of what's in front of you. And that gentleman who said your faith is, however he said it, your faith is so amazing. And he showed up and your friends that showed up and the people that bought Nate's paintings or the person that, you know, Mm -hmm. brought you guys to Costa Rica. And there's just like, there's so many amazing stories in this book of people showing up. Yes. And I just, I just, I, I like it challenged me to be like, where am I not showing up? And by that, I don't mean, sometimes I think we, we, we see a, like something on the news and we're like, we have to go help that. And I'm not saying we don't have to go help that, but like, you know, mother Teresa says, you want to change the world, go home and love your family. Mm -hmm. Like there's so many little things in your daily life, whether you're on a flight and you meet a flight attendant or, you know, you see a kid across the aisle that's going crazy and you can just help the mom out or, you know, somebody drops something to the grocery store. There's so many little things how we can love people well and show up for people that are literally right in our sphere of influence, if you will. 
And I just, I think that's what I love so much about this book is it's just literally example after example, after example of people loving you well and you loving people well. It's such a, it's almost like they could fill you up. So then you could love your son well. Well, which brings me to the chapter of non-rep travel and the vines and the grapes. I mean, I obviously have done a lot of travel and it's been awesome. Some for fun, some for work, but um, got interested in the whole wine industry and all of that. And um, if you read the book, you'll, you'll, you can, you can understand a little bit more, but I guess in short, a, a vine has to suffer to produce amazing grapes. And then those grapes have to be crushed and then that's poured out. And then we're drinking it down. It's communion. It's, it's, it's community. It's so many things. It's like such a great metaphor that, you know, where it's continuous, it's a continual thing that's happening. And I think it's so beautiful. And I love that. I just love the whole wine analogy and seeing how important community is and how important it is, not just for you, but to pour it back out. I just got back from Napa and I watched them um, during harvest, they were, har- they were harvesting all the, um, the grapes for, for cab. And I stood there and I mean, literally I was in tears in my pajamas because <laughs> they harvest at night and I'm standing out there in my pajamas thinking, this is so cool. And watching them cut all the grapes and so fast. And then the next morning we go for a tasting and we're actually tasting what they cut in the backyard, literally. I mean, we were, t- they were pr- processing and then we tasted, you know, one that had been made from a couple of years ago, but, um, but just actually seeing them process, you know, they were taking those grapes, sorting, you know, crushing, going into the vat for five days or however long as they ferment. And, you know, it was just the whole thing and actually seeing it because I've written about it. And I feel like it's just like, it's so important to realize that it's not just for you to become a beautiful grape. It's, it's that, so that you can become what God's called you to be mm. and that you have an, you have assignments and you have people in your life and, and being present for those and being poured out and given away. And I think it's just awesome. And then that is communion. And that's that we're all drinking from that cup. And it's like Henry now and says, are you willing to drink from the cup? Are you willing? That's, mm. You know, are we will, really willing to die to who we are and take on what God has really called us to be about? And I mean, honestly, I would stand there at some of my broken moments, taking communion and think, I don't know if I want to do this because this is painful, but you know, I'm going with you. I'm standing and really what that means, but then being willing to be poured back out mm. is important. You know, as you're talking and, and the vine and everything, I just keep thinking of like superhero origin stories. And I think everybody wants to be whether it's the famous person or the superhero or the, the, the mother Teresa or the, the you know, uh, Davy Jones, whether it's goodness or, or fame or amazingness, right? Like we really do, even the people that are shy, we want to feel amazing. We want to feel like we're doing something important because we want to be important. And what's so interesting is like what you were just saying, like the vine has to suffer, then it's a beautiful grape and then the br- grape has to get crushed. I think we're sold this, like going back to kind of this American version of faith, we're sold this thing that everything's going to be awesome. If you just believe, if you just do this one thing, just everything will be fine. If you send me this check so I can get a private check. No, if, if you, if you, if you do this, everything's going to be great. 
You're going to have all this money. You're going to have wonderful clothes and all this influence. Also, we should note, we should note that that's not specifically American Christianity. That's just like the American idea of do this thing and you'll get this. You'll get this. It's meritocracy, right? So it's, it's, and it's the American Mm. dream. You're right. I agree with that. And so I almost feel like if we could prepare our kids when they come out of the womb to like, let's get a superhero origin story. Like, let's look at the real picture of how this Mm -hmm. guy or this girl Mm -hmm. got to this place. And it was a lot of suffering and crushing. And it's an upside down down kingdom. It's an upside Mm -hmm. down kingdom. It's not, you know, that's Tim Keller. And I quote him a lot in the book, but it is, it's an upside down kingdom. And the way up is down, Hmm. you know, I mean, it's crazy that, it has to go that way. It doesn't seem to make sense, especially in how the world lives and how, you know, all these, these ideas that are being pushed upon us as far as how we should live our lives and what's going to happen if we do these things right. But I also think there's this idea of like, your suffering was for this reason. Your trauma was for this reason. And it's like, no, sometimes it just happens. That's right. You know, like it, it, nothing has to grow out of it for it to, to be worthy of being grieved. Mm. And I think there's just, there's sort of this fairy tale of like, she had the evil stepmother and then she got the family she always dreamed of. Like, right. Sometimes that stuff just kind of happens. Yeah, exactly. I mean, sometimes people just die and you don't really know what purpose, but I, you know, that's the thing. Like, I feel like that there's definitely beauty from ashes with my life and I don't have all the answers, but I know what it's not. It's not because God doesn't love me. Hmm. I love that. I don't I know what it, so why it, why it is. I don't know. I can't put all the pieces of the puzzle together. I can't find that narrative and just write it out. But I, I do know that he loves me and I know what it's not. And I really do. I, I live by that. And so I just wait and see how, how he takes the beauty, uh, how he takes the ashes and makes beauty. Cause he does it over and over and over. You see it all through the book. And so it's like, I don't really know, like from here on out, I didn't want the book to just be like a memoir because I felt like that's kind of, I'm at the end of my life and y'all, yeah, I am almost a hundred, but hopefully I've got a few more years to live, but you know, I don't know where it's going from here. I don't know what the future holds. So we'll see. Also, just a heads up, a lot of people write more than one memoir. They True write well. one and then they write another because <laughs> well, new lessons sure are learned. Or Diane Keaton's are- written like three. So <laughs> there you go. Erin, <laughs> um, do you want to ask our final question? I do. I also have another question, but it might be a better one for Patreon. I was wondering if you could give our listeners some tips on genuine community building. And I mean, like literal, like how do you yeah, make let's save friends that. as an adult? <laughs> yeah, no, let's uh, let's save that for Patreon because I'm going to ask her also about okay, that. So we'll add that yeah. at the end. Okay, yeah. um, we have two questions that we like to wrap our show up with. And our first one is, um, if you could tell your 12-year-old self anything, what would you tell her? I would tell her that she is beautiful and she is loved. I love that. I think that's- That's what I would tell her. Mm. Do you know what? So many people have said that. And I'm like, I just want to go find a 12 year old, just shake that into them. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. And our last question is what was your crushed song when you were in middle school? And then you can pick whichever crush moment that you've sort of discussed. Middle or this high, episode. whatever, like middle high school, whatever a record you were, or an A track you were just going for. Oh my goodness. Well, so, um, I mean, there were probably several, but I would say, um, Elton John, your song. 
Oh. oh. <laughs> we both just. <laughs> because there were some breakups and, you know, I never, I never really dated anybody longer than a week in high school. <laughs> And it felt like a lifetime. <laughs> felt like a lifetime, yeah. But the ones that were kind of like, you know, more than a week, but there was one guy in particular. And so that was kind of our song, you know. So every time I hear it still, you know, you think, isn't it weird how music will take you right oh, back? Oh, completely. Takes it's you like right you're back. there, you're in whatever room, yeah. you're wearing whatever, totally. Yeah, color my world. I mean, you know. Uh, <laughs> Another so good. One. Gretchen, seriously, thank you so much for being here. This was, you know, this is going to sound really silly, this word, but it was just really special. Uh Yeah. Like it was, I think that, you know, each of the women that we have on here and Bradley, but each of the women that we have on here has, they bring so much to the table and they bring so much to our listeners. And I'm not, I just, I'm really excited for people to listen to this episode. Oh, that means the world. Thank you. And if you want to get her book, we will have it in the show notes. We'll have the link as well as um, on our Instagram and stuff. And we're going to do a little promo for our crushies. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. What a blessing to be asked. I love it. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.